Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Jeff Hamilton, who covers the Jets for the Winnipeg Free Press. Thanks so much, Jeff, for, for taking the time and coming on. How's it going? Alex, great to be on. Uh, things are going well, man. Here in Winnipeg, we're starting to finally see a bit of spring. It got to about 10 degrees today, which is which is super nice. I, it's still it's still brisk. Uh, at night but uh with playoff hockey now around the corner here it's uh it's it's christmas in it's christmas in april right now so it's uh all things coming up winnipeg for for uh you know for what otherwise is a pretty cold month right now yeah yeah no for sure i mean i think they they say in, in manitoba gets more days of sun than california so maybe it's uh sunnier here in, or there in uh, winnipeg than it is in uh, Las Vegas, where you're going to be covering the Jets. Um, I first want to ask a little bit about your career. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? You know, it's a it's a good question. It's a bit of a long answer, but I'll I'll try to I'll try to uh, no, no. I'll try to I won't speed it up, but I'll I'll give it's, it's funny because I was I was playing junior hockey and I was 21 years old. And I, and I, I don't even know if I knew what journalism was like the actual Mm. word, like to describe, I mean, I knew reporting, I knew, you know, I knew what an anchor was, stuff like that, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. At 21, I had just finished junior hockey. I'd broken pretty much every bone in my body. Mm. And I, and now I was about to take, you know, my, my skills, if you will, into the classroom and, and, you know, off the rink. And so I was deciding on what I wanted to do, um, you know, I think like anybody, you know, who doesn't know exactly what they want to do, they, they kind of look at what their interests are, what they're, you know, what they're, you know, what do they do in their life? How can you do something that you already enjoy? And I obviously, obviously love sports. I was a hockey player, but I played all kinds of sports growing up. Uh, I was a pretty competitive soccer player as well, um, but played everything. But more importantly, I, I would watch TSN like three times a day, you know, like I'd watch the same segment over and over and over again. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe I could do that. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I Googled like how to get a job at TSN or something like that, just, to, you know, just to figure out what this role was and whatnot. And that led me to, you know, a handful of journalism schools. And I ultimately figured out what journalism meant and what degree I would need if I wanted to do that. So that was kind of my original goal. And ultimately, um, you know, just wanting to continue to have some kind of role in sports. So I enrolled in uh, Carleton Journalism School in Ottawa, went down there and, uh, you know, in 20. 20- yeah, 20, 2008, um, graduated in 2012. It was a great four years. Uh, learned a lot of, of great things. I think my biggest takeaway from Carleton was, was uh, with the education was to, you need to, to learn the rules before you break them. And I think that was the most <laughs> important lesson I learned in my four years, um, but just really developed a passion from there. It started off as, again, just something I, I thought maybe I wanted to to do and thought it would be fun to really, really seeing what the opportunities were in journalism, you know, and, and as, as my career has, has gone on now for, we're coming up at about, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a journalist for more than 10 years now. It's just, uh, you know, from that, from those four years, it's just, I learned a lot about what, what, what could happen, what, what, what kind of journalist I could be wanted to be. And, and certainly over the years have uh, developed those skills and been able to do a lot of cool things in my profession. And, and you mentioned that you played you played hockey at, as a junior player and also you played a bunch of other sports, love TSN. With that, what, how does that maybe being a fan and, and just being an athlete shape how you write or does that have an impact on, on your writing and maybe your, even your process? I think I don't know so much if it has a I think that was the part that I needed to learn how to do was the writing process. I was always, you know, I think I think a lot of people in this profession, particularly in the print uh, industry, 
I was always a good writer, but I wasn't like a good newspaper writer. Like I love to write short stories. I wrote poetry in high school. I wrote, um, you know, I, I, I can look back at a couple different projects I did during grade school and whether they were, you know, whether they were, uh, you know, whether it was a, like a book report or a monologue for a book report. Like I was always interested in those things. I used to write rap lyrics with my buddies in grade seven. Like it just was always my creative outlet was always writing, but I don't think I actually knew how to write. You know, and that's why I kind of bring up the know the rules before you break them. So to answer your question, I don't think it, it so much shaped my writing, but it shaped my interests. And I really do think you need to enjoy what you're covering. Um, certainly having played various sports, it gives you a good foundation on how to cover them. Like, you know, what what's, a, you know, just being able to understand the game, the rules, all those things. I mean, those you can certainly cover a sport having not played it. Uh, and what I mean by that is you can certainly learn different sports and, and the different rules and nuances, but having, being able to play that competing at a, you know, a good level being in that competition, it just, it kind of puts you in there a little bit. Now I'm not comparing myself to NHL athletes or, you know, come anywhere close to that degree, uh, you know, or level of sport, but I think there are some similarities in competitive sports in general. So I'd say less about the writing and more so, about just understanding the game, understanding what maybe some of the players are going through, some of the, you know, some of the challenges, like I, I, I use as an example, like, you know, having been a power play player in hockey, I know what happens when a power play isn't going for you. I know how much momentum it can, can suck out of your team, out of you as an individual. It's just an example. So it's like, it's just more, more so experience and interest. And I really do, I'll go back to my original point. I really do think you need to be interested in what you're writing about to be, you know, for it to sing or it to be good. Um, you can definitely get by and fake it on certain things, but I think the best writers are those who have the biggest passion uh, in that sport. And certainly um, sports was a big passion in my life and something I wanted to continue in my, my, uh, my professional career, whatever, you know, whatever way that would be and, and turned it out to be writing. Uh, you've you've also written not only about obviously the Jets, but you've written stories about sexual predation in, in hockey, and you've really uncovered a lot of stories in about kind of sexual predators in hockey. Maybe tell us how you came about finding these stories and what made you want to investigate the stories that you did. So, you know, I was somebody who always like to go beyond the game story. Like I just, I, I you know, and I, I really think it's something that I, I don't like writing something that doesn't interest me. And if it's not exciting, if it's not, and I'm not trying to say, you know, researching, investigating sexual predators is some kind of exciting uh, endeavor, but it's something that, you know, you learn with journalism, just the power in, in which you can tell stories. And so you want, you know, when I say go beyond the game story, I want, you know, I, I want to write stories with depth. I want to write stories that have emotion, that have meaning, that can impact people's lives, that can change people's lives, that can improve people's lives, that can change the way institutions do work. Those are the, those are kind of some of the early things you learn in journalism school, but it's not until you get the opportunity to actually do some of that work that you do fully understand the power. And so you're right. I've, I've been fortunate to work at a, you know, at the Winnipeg free press that's seen that talent in me has certainly given me the resources and time and attention. And it's, you know, as much as my name's on a lot of these investigations, it's, it's a lot of hands in, at play, whether that's copy editors, whether that's, 
you know, editor, editors that help, you know, work with work, shape the story and, and form it. I mean, there's a editor, um, investigatives editor named Scott Gibbons at the Winnipeg Free Press, who I work closely with. He's just a terrific editor um, when it comes to, you know, doing that investigative work. And, and so really how it got on my radar was radar was just, I think my editors understood that, I needed something a little bit deeper. I, I needed, I needed to sink my teeth into something. And this would have been in around I'm trying to do the math now, 2016, 2017. So a couple of years after I got hired uh, at the Winnipeg free press. Um, and what really, what really kind of catapulted me, if you will, into the investigative side of journalism was I got to spend three years, uh, not exclusively, but a lot of time within those three years working on, uh, on a, on a series um, that covered, you know, sexual predator Graham James. It calls it was called a stand on on our game, uh, and there was a six part series. Again, it took me a few years to finish. Thousands of phone calls, you know, thousands of hours of of tape and and talk, and and so that process. It's you know, it's it, it really is. It's not for everybody. I mean, particularly the subject matter. It's not an easy subject matter to dive into. To you know, have be a big part of your life for a long stretch of time. But, you know, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to talk with a lot of investigative reporters, not just in this province, but uh, across the country. And we all kind of have the same thing in common. We just have this deep desire to do right and to, you know, to uncover uh, things, um, you know, issues and to better people's lives. And certainly I, I I definitely got that through the Graham James series over those three years. And then, and then again, like that, that catapulted me into becoming somebody who can not just, you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to do the work, um, you know, but it's another thing to be able to show people you can do the work because there's Mm -hmm. a, there's a, there's a level of empathy you need to have in your writing in investigative reporting and particularly around, you know, substance abuse issues, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, all those things um, that it takes a lot of trust, right? It, it takes a lot of trust within the subject to trust the writer to tell their story. Cause a lot of people don't know what that looks like. They don't know if, if you have a conversation with me for 15 minutes or a half an hour or 45 minutes or several conversations over a stretch of time, how is the, all that conversation going to look like on print? And so I think one of the things that certainly benefited me um, from that standpoint was being able to show that series that I did, to be able to show what it looks like to have a conversation um, and, and you know, how I write about it. And so I really just got hooked on it from there. And um, it's really been an important uh, part of my career. It's been a priority of mine. I do love covering games. I, I, I kind of balance the two ones. One's more of like the toy department of covering professional sports teams. And then, and then you kind of get into the shit of it on the other side. And so for me, it really does balance each other. And it's actually made me a better reporter on the sports side because, you know, I don't want to speak for, you know, my colleagues, but I think there's a hesitancy to challenge athletes. And there's a, you know, particularly people who are new to the, you know, new to the beats and stuff like that. It can be an intimidating exercise to walk into a locker room uh, you know, full of millionaires, people who make a ton of money, who, you know, who have all kind of lived their whole life kind of being celebrated, right? And to challenge them and to, you know, and to be a, you know, be the kind of reporter that fans expect you to be, right? I mean, there's some fans that expect you to be raw, raw, but there's a lot of fans out there that want that want to get the truth, want to get, you know, find out what the journalism is in sports. And so having having done those other invest other investigations, having, you know, having 
what I would actually call difficult questions and conversations uh, with people, then to bring that into an NHL locker room, it makes it seem like a real big breeze. So it's, I, I, I use the two things to really balance out almost my mental health because you can't be in the thick of this, you know, mm-hmm. deep investigations all the time. And that's all you're doing. Like, you know, just as a, as a, as a, as a side note to that, I mean, I finished that three year, uh, investigation and I did six months of therapy, you know, just wow. to like, just to, just to unpack some of the stuff that, uh, that I went through during that, that during that investigation. Mm-hmm. Now I had, you know, I was lucky enough to have support from all across the country. Um, and I, you know, as someone who had done therapy as a, as a earlier in my life, um, I knew the benefits of doing that. So it wasn't like I was running towards needing therapy sessions after it, but I knew the importance of unpacking. It turned out to be a really important thing. So my, my, it's just a roundabout way of saying, it's just, I, I, I like to have this happy balance of, okay, walking in and covering scores and covering, you know, pro teams and everyone's smiling, especially when they're winning versus covering a little bit of the harder stuff that involves, you know, emo- like a lot of emotion, a lot of, you know, very serious and then sometimes illegal behavior. So, um, you know, I, 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 I tickle both fancies, the need to be an, uh, an investigative reporter and everything that comes with that. And at the same time, enjoying covering teams and being on the road. And that includes the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as well, as I get a chance mm-hmm. to cover, you know, kind of both of the pro teams in the city. So I really do have, in my opinion, the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And like, as a therapist to be, I appreciate you talking about that as like, I think it's really important to do. And as well, just to to go off that, you mentioned, there's a lot of different things I've taken from what you've just said, but you mentioned challenging and creating relationships. And how did you create relationships with in the in the investigative sense um, of, of the people that you had on? And maybe how is that similar and different to the relationships when you're challenging players like maybe Mark Shifley for not backchecking or whatever the case? Right. Um, so, how do you create those relationships? Two very different approaches, I would say. I mean, certainly with the investigative stuff, um, you just come from a place where I try to, because a lot of the times the people I'm interviewing feel powerless in the situation, right? They've been, whether they've been abused, uh, whether they have addictions uh, issues, you know, to this day or whatever, at the at the moment I was uh, was talking to them, so a lot of them feel powerless in their own stories. So the way I try to, you know, when I get asked that question, I think the most important part in gaining trust um, with sources, with people uh, for investigative work, is to is to give them all the power in the conversation. And and what I mean by that is, is I'm, you know, no one has to talk to me. I, I think there's, and again, I don't want to speak for any journalists. I don't, you know, I'm not in on anybody else's phone calls, so I don't know this, but I do think there's a tendency under, and I think that's why it takes time and patience, right? Because a lot of the times under tight deadlines, editors might want it now, right? And, and so that might result in quick, you know, quick, quick question asking or, or, you know, you, you, you talk to them for a little bit and all of a sudden you're getting into it and, 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 and you don't know what it's like, you know, what it's like to approach these kind of, you don't know what's going to trigger them. You don't know, like, you know, and, and it can't be self-serving. It's not like you're going in there to tell your story. You're mm-hmm. essentially going in and telling their story. So I make it very, very, very clear right off the bat that they don't owe me anything that they, you know, they don't have to talk to me that it's a, you know, it can start with a conversation. And what I like to do is I like to say, I'll work with you every step of the way. So I don't want you to think that 
I want you to talk freely in a conversation so that you're not guarded on certain things or, or as not as much as you would naturally be if you didn't know where I was going. And then after that, you know, it becomes a long process. It becomes a process of, you know, and it depends on, on the subject. It depends on where they fit in the story, you know, how prominent they are in the story and all those things. But I like to stay in contact with them and then, and then walk them through what I think is of value um, from their interviews and what I think is of value to the story and to other people who will read it. And then we work together. And so that, that really, in my opinion, is, is the way of building trust. Um, there's been lots of examples where, and I live up to my word, there, there are times where you, you know, and I use put the word push lightly, like it's not like you're pushing them to like convincing them, but you, in some cases you, you are kind of trying to do a better job of showing them the benefits, right? Because I think there's a, an inherent feeling that, you know, I don't want to say this or this, you know, this could be an issue. And so you work with them on why you might want their name used, why you might want certain aspects of a story that that may seem difficult to talk about and explain why you want those in the story. Right. And, and then again, you, you, you let them make the final decision. So at the end of the day, they're the ones who have the power over their story. They're the ones who have the power to make the decisions. Um, and then, you know, again, I'll, I'll echo something I said before. Sometimes it's being able and it's then being able to show them some of the work I've done. And so then that's a big part of building trust when it comes to those investigative work, because now they can see what it looks like. They can see how somebody writes it. It's not um, it's not an idea in their head now and they can actually visualize it. Now, with the players, um, sometimes it's just, you know, and, and again, it's just kind of understanding that. You know, asking a guy why he's not back checking or asking him where his defensive game is at, like when you've dealt with this other stuff, like in my mind, I'm thinking that's not a big deal at all. Like, why would like, you know, this is a game. Like, why why would anybody be bothered? Like, why would you be bothered if I asked you about a crappy second period? Like mm-hmm. if players are, are we, if we are to believe every player who says that their own harshest critic, then. I don't need to work with this player or whatever in, in, in the relationship building though, in, in, in that aspect, you know, there are going to be tense moments. There are going to be tense moments with players. There's going to be tense situations. There's going to be situations as a reporter that you don't really want to get into or might not be comfortable or you might not be feeling that day, but you just push through it. And if, if a player wants to be snarky with you, they're snarky with you. I, I find that in my opinion, if you're true to yourself, um, they end up respecting you at the end of the day, regardless, even if you have the battles. And I've seen this in the past. It almost seems like the people who, 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 uh, headbutt each other and, 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 and butt heads like in, mm-hmm. in interviews turn out to end up having an incredible amount of respect for each other by the end of it. It's just, we, you know, I think it's the players are the best who, who understand we have a job to do. I think as reporters, we also need to understand that players are human as well. Um, and so in, in that respect, I think it's just, it's just handling yourself the right way, being able to write the, you know, ask the right questions in the right kind of manner to, that's going to elicit the best answers, right? In some cases, it's, it's not telling a player exactly what you want to, what you're writing about, but you're, you're letting them know early on, this is what, this is the story I'm looking to do so that they're not wondering in their head, why is he asking me this question or this question, or this question, because a lot of, a lot of players get kind of taught whether it's from their media departments or whether it's from, you know, media training at the beginning of the year, I think they're kind of told to be a little bit safe with reporters. Like don't say everything and don't be too honest. Right. And it only takes getting burnt once to, to, to kind of not want to open yourself up and be honest. So I, as a journalist, I try to, while I, although I take a different approach to the players, 
than I would in investigative work. Of course, I, I I'm just a little bit more straightforward with the players. Like, I, like you don't mm. want to like, you know, beat around the bush and talk about, you just want to, like, and I think a lot of players like when they say about coaches who tell them honesty, like brutal honesty with players is appreciated from their coaches. So they know exactly where they stand. I'm not going to, I'm not going to relate my relationship with players as similar to the coaches, but I will in the similar, in the sense of the process and that being straight up, not beating around the bush because what you're asking about and what the information you're looking for, if it, if you're, if you're coming at it at a, at a certain approach and then in the, in, in your story, it's a completely different tone or something like that, that, that becomes a bit of a disconnect and a lack of trust for sure with players. And you, you mentioned to, that you, you think, that journalists need to be kind of honest, especially in the sports realm. And obviously it's a bit different with investigative reporting. What else, what other advice would you give to maybe young journalists coming up in the industry? I'll, I'll repeat it because I, I do think it's incredibly important. I think you need to learn the rules before you break them. And I, you know, I've said that a few times here, but what I mean by that is you just need to know some of the rules around journalism so that, that, you know, that you're not, I find a lot of people that come into the industry want to do something exciting or they want to be Stephen A. Smith right away. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you can go, you can get too into it too quickly. Um, try to be a voice, right? I, I find with journalism, it's heading more towards opinion and less about reporting. Um, and so that's kind of what I mean by like the rules first, like learn the rules of being a reporter before you get into being a columnist or, or talking about how this player, you know, is, is so-and-so or that, you know, injecting yourself or your opinion into a piece um as far as building relationships i think you just i think what worked for me um was having like i always had a confidence to me like i i, I you 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 know i don't want to compare it to dating but like you hear a lot of people like you like someone who's confident you like someone who carries himself confidently and i think that you know it can be a nerve-wracking and i certainly when i you know my first ever you know first ever experiences in an NHL locker room or a CFL locker room, like it was daunting. Like it was, it, you know, I'd gone through my four years of, of journalism school and I, you know, I'd practiced a lot of interviewing and stuff, but there's nothing that quite gets you ready for a locker room like that. But I've always, I always presented myself with confidence and you, and, and it's not false confidence. It's confidence built on preparation, um, preparation and what the story you want to do, the questions you want to ask. So all those things like writing down your questions, um, understanding what your story idea is where you know but not being married to a story idea either because it you know there's got to be some flexibility there if it changes or what people say like you're not trying to write a story and then go i want this player to say this right here right or, and try to elicit a certain answer so uh, you know a, another big piece of advice which is which sounds obvious but is it can it can be it can be very challenging sometimes is to listen to what your subject is saying because a lot of times when you're new at your job you ask a question and you're almost kind of like, phew, I, I asked that I was able to get the question out. I'm not listening to the answer. I'm just saying the next question in my head so I don't forget it. Um, well, I, you know, like I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. I think what you want to do is you want to listen to your subject and then not necessarily go on a checklist of questions because there might be something that they say in that answer that might be an entirely interesting tidbit different from your story or related to your story that you might want to explore. It might become, might not just make your story better, might even make a different story, a different, better story. So simply listening to subjects while sound incredibly obvious is, is actually a very important piece of advice that I can give, uh, you know, pr prospective journalists for sure. 
And what's maybe been your most memorable moment of your career? Hmm. You know, I, you know, I don't. So a couple different moments. I was working at the free press for like two and a half weeks when I got sent to Anaheim for the Jets. Mm-hmm. First playoff run in 2015. That was incredibly. It might not even have been two weeks. It might have been within a wow. week. Like I think I was told something like 48 or 72 hours after getting the job that I was going to Anaheim to help out with the playoffs. Now that was obviously the first, the Jets' first, uh, first playoff game, uh, first playoff series rather, and uh, and it was super exciting to be a part of. Um, but there's other other memorable stuff. I mean, I've been able to see. You know, the Bombers win two Grey Cups and go to three. That was really cool. I mean, particularly 2019, you know, busting what was a 28-year Grey Cup drought to to finally have the Bombers, you know, cross the finish line. That was incredibly cool. I bring up that um, three-year three uh, investi- investigative series I did. I was very fortunate to be recognized um, for a couple national awards. And so that was certainly memorable. An opportunity, it's not about... It's not about winning awards, but they certainly help put your name on the map, put your paper on the map, um, and certainly are moments where you reflect back at your career. Um, tons of other stuff include like just being able to go to different cities. You know, when I was when I was in, I can remember being in journalism school and you know, I, 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 you know, wanting to be a sports reporter, wanting to be a, you know, everyone, everybody, whether it's sports or otherwise wants to be a traveling reporter, like every single person. It's just, and, and, and anyone who's ever ex- expressed that, um, that want has been told by people that it's impossible, that it's, you know, that it's, you know, that it's not going to happen, that it's very rare that you get that opportunity and all that stuff. And I remember being told by not necessarily professors. I don't think there was any professors that were doing that, but certainly, you know, students who were older than me, students of my own, you know, students of my own age, um, people who I was around who have told me in the past that that's just, you know, not, not doable. And then, and then, you know, to have gone to pretty much, I think I need two more of the rinks of so the 32 rinks in the, in the NHL and obviously all the CFL uh, stadiums. I mean, you know, by my mid thirties, that's, that's certainly a memorable piece of it. I was there for, I was there for Sidney Crosby's thousand points in Pittsburgh. I was there for Alexander Ovechkin's uh, moving into second. He was both, both were against the jets. <laughs> so I happened to find myself at both those games covering them. Those are memorable moments. So Um, but really man every day is memorable because it's just it's when you love what you do it's I know it sounds cliche but when you love what you do every day is a is a good day and that's certainly the case a lot of the time for for my work for sure and I'm sure you're very excited to to see the Jets in the playoffs with fans for the first time in what three four years now Um, I wanted to to talk about the Jets they're obviously playing the Golden Knights how should the Jets feel about their matchup against the Golden Knights? And are the Golden Knights maybe a, a good matchup for the Jets? Well, if, you, if you're reading other pundits around the league and, and stuff, they got the they got this series as a coin flip. It's supposed to be the closest. I mean, this is all based on underlying numbers and, and whatnot and analytics. And they have the Jets being pretty close to the Vegas Golden Knights uh, as far as as far as those underlying numbers, ultimately what they're saying is the Jets record isn't as bad as it suggests and the Vegas Golden Knights record isn't as good as it suggests. So, uh, you know, whether or not that proves to be true, we'll figure out here over the next week or two. Um, I'm just, I think, I, I think like many people in this city, it's, it's just going to be a really exciting atmosphere to get the whiteout parties back. I think, you know, with COVID and, um, and just how much it's affected everybody and, and particularly their joy, 
level in life, uh, you know, to get those street parties back outside, to get that atmosphere back in Canada Life Centre. Um, there really is no better atmosphere, in my opinion, in the NHL. Um, and really no better arena for it because of how small it is. I mean, it doesn't work well as far as attendance and and whatnot. You, you know, you want to probably have more seats. But as far as an atmosphere goes, it really is second to none. And um, and as far as, you know, I, I think with the Jets' chances, I mean, I think you have to be confident if you have a guy like, like Connor Hellebuck between the pipes. I mean, that's, you know, we, we know how important goaltending is in the NHL and all those, you know, crucial things to be in a good team just get magnified in the playoffs. And so if Connor Hellebuck can play the way Connor Hellebuck's played in the past, certainly gives the Jets an opportunity. It's obviously very interesting that Laurent Brossois is, is in the net for, uh, for Vegas. And while I think a lot of people are looking at him as, you know, being the understudy to, to Hellebuck and how this is, you know, an easy matchup for, for, for the Jets as far as, you know, who's in net and, and, and rightfully so, I, you know, you ask 10 people, they're going to take Connor Hellebuck 10 out of 10 times, but Laurent Passois, while a short, uh, a short sample or a small sample size is seven Oh and three in, uh, in, in 11, in, in 11 games, um, obviously didn't get a decision on one of those, but hasn't lost in regulation time. Uh, has certainly been great down the stretch. So we'll see. I think that's one of the juicier storylines. There's a lot of Winnipeggers on Vegas, including Mark Stone, and he's he's going to be back now after missing, you know, a ton of time with, with back surgery. So that, that's going to be an exciting, you know, plot line. Jack Eichel for Vegas getting his first taste of, of playoff hockey. So there's, you know, I, I think the Jets, just to answer the question, you know, beyond Connor Hellbuck and why he should be confident, I think, if they can have their top line going of Mark Shifley and Pierre-Luc Dubois and, and Kyle Connor, if they can be the, the Jets' best players as, as they are, um, then the Jets are in a really good spot. And, and I'll, I'll, add, I'll add the power play because the Jets, five-on-five, five, even strength goals are, are hard to come by in the playoffs. Um, you know, the Jets aren't exactly the most dominating five-on-five team. So if they can get if they can get their power play up to snuff in the same level as their penalty kill right now, then yeah, I think they're confident, but they're going to have their hands full. The Vegas Golden Knights are a fast team. They plug up the middle. They don't give up a lot. Um, and while they might not have the advantage in, in, in goal, they certainly have a, a better defensive group in front of their goalie uh, and a, and a group and a, and a deep, a deep group of forwards that, uh, that can certainly, uh, you know, have, are, are certainly a big reason why they finished top in the Western conference. Uh, how much, do you think Rick Bonus will rely on Josh Morrissey against the Golden Knights? Could he maybe even be playing 30 minutes a night? Possibly. He's definitely one of the guys. I think him and Nikolai Ehlers are the two, and Pierre-Luc Dubois, I think, are the three guys. And you can add Mark Scheifele in there. I think the expectation is Mark Scheifele to be a good playoff player. We've seen it in the past. Uh, certainly Jets fans will want to see it this time around. But, you know, Josh Morrissey is one of those guys where, you know, he absolutely, you know, was on fire through the first half of the season. Like he was, you know, he was playing incredibly well, um, you know, was up there with uh, defensive points. Um, and then that his production, particularly on the defensive side, started to, you know, started to get, started to trend the other way in the last second half. And while we did see, certainly saw, you know, great moments from Josh throughout the second half of the season, he was, you know, he was, he'd provide that emotional spark when the Jets needed it at times and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think he's going to have to bring his best game. And to your point, Alex, I think he, you know, I think he's, he is capable of playing 30 minutes and there's no doubt in my mind, depending on how the game goes and where the game goes, he will be leaned on heavily because 
there is no waiting for next round, you know, so they're going to use him. He's certain Josh is certainly capable of logging big minutes. And I'm excited to see what he can do because this is the first time we're seeing a Josh Morrissey play playoffs as that offensive juggernaut. What's he going to bring to the table offensively? We know exactly what, you know, how good he can be defensively. We know he's going to play against the, the other team's top, top players. What can he do on the other end of the ice uh, to tip the scales in the Jets' favor? And if he can do anything close to what he was doing in the first half of the season, uh, it's going to be – he will bode incredibly well for the Jets for sure. And and as well, to touch on bonus and the matchups, which line do you think bonus will play against maybe the Eichel line and kind of shut them down or try to shut them down? You know what? It's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot over the last day and a half and really since the Vegas Golden Knights were determined to be the Jets' first-round matchup. I think it's going to be very different depending on what arena you're in. Obviously, when it's your arena, you get last change. So in Winnipeg, I think Rick Bonus is going to want to match that line with with uh, with Jack Eichel, their top line, um, with Lowry's line, with Nino Niederreiter and Mason Appleton. They've proven to be a great checking line. They've been proven to be a great uh, shutdown line, but they've also proven to have a bit of offense here. So I would classify that. If they can be a, if they can add some offense while shutting down that top line, and I, I'm going to say it's going to be probably going to be the plan at home for game three and four. We'll see what happens with one and two, but if they can do that, that's kind of the areas to win in the playoffs. You need to get contributions from areas you don't expect every night, and if and and I think that if the third line of Adam Lowry, Neil Ryder, and Mason Appleton can chip in offensively while also taking on those big defensive minutes against the the other team's top line then i think that 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 is gonna that is certainly in that in that category of you know contributions from places that you didn't you don't necessarily expect every night what's going to happen in game one and two i have no idea but i have this as far as matching because because the vegas is going to get that decision and i don't think they're going to want to match their top line with adam lowry's line i think they're going to want to go up against the mark shifley pierre Dubois, and kyle connor line um, and we've seen Jack Eichel. He's got 66 points this year. He led the Vegas Golden Knights with 66 points. They don't have anybody with 70-plus points. But 47 of those 66 were even strength. And so if I'm Bruce Cassidy on the bench of the Vegas Golden Knights, I'm putting out my top line with Jack Eichel against their top line and hoping to end up on net positive. Because yeah. if you take the Jets' top line out of it, then you're putting a lot of pressure on some of those other lines to perform offensively. And I think that's where things could certainly get interesting. And, and I'll, I'll throw in one more wrinkle with Rick bonus, assuming they can't match lines the way they want to match lines, the jets to the first, first game in particular, first two games. I think if it goes sideways, you could see the blender out real quick. Okay. I think, I think that, you know, I think that I'm not saying they wouldn't go back to it in game two or back to it in game three or game four, the lines they have now, which I like the look of the lines. But if things go sideways uh, in, in one of those games, I could see Rick Bonus switching things up, changing personnel, maybe moving a Nino Niederreiter up the lineup and creating, like, creating a little bit of a different look so they're not matching necessarily skill on skill and are playing a little bit more of a balanced lineup um, against some of the, their top guns and, and not having, you know, because what we've seen from, well, certainly Mark Shifley, Pierre-Luc Dubon, Kyle Connor are the most gifted players along with Nikolai Ehlers offensively on this team they're not exactly known for their defensive prowess so if if the if the scales start getting tipped against winnipeg i could see rick bonus being quick to bring out the blender and shake things up do, do you think that means that 
Mark Scheifele would return to being a centerman. And I mean, a lot of Jets fans are pretty maligned with his defensive impact as a center. So what do you think about that? It could be. I mean, it could be. uh, It certainly could be Mark going back to center. It could be. um, It could be uh, him staying on the wing. I mean, I I just I, I look more at like that third line like that, like in particularly Nino Niederreiter, like I, I look at him as a guy who, who has that offensive punch. And if you're unless, and if they're not dominating, then they're not, you know, dominating the third line and gain that offense, or more importantly, if the top lines aren't generating that offense, the way Rick bonus wants to generate offense, which is get to the net, get the puck on net, get some of those dirty goals, right. They're not all going to be fancy, you know, despite, evidence against it the Jets can't pass the puck over the goal line like they need to they need to play some dirtier hockey and that's you know essentially playoff hockey I just think more of bringing an added a different attitude to the lines rather than necessarily you know whether it's you know skill player like a mark moving back to center or on, or on the wing and how much of an impact could the Jets fans at is it the MTS center I think they changed it at uh, a life center now yeah at a life work. center and and the whiteout have potentially on the series against the Golden Knights just such a electric crowd massive like it's it, it, it's such an important piece to the puzzle i would say as someone who's been to majority of the arenas in the league t-mobile and canada life center vegas golden knights fans jets fans are the two loudest fan wow. bases like, in the arena so like, like every every night is going to be like and i you know i i understand how hard it is to play it can be it can be daunting for teams to come in i think it's especially daunting if you feel like you're outmatched by the team you know what I mean? Like if you go into if you go into Boston and you're the eighth seed and they've been, you know, handing everybody their lunch all season long. Well, Boston's even scarier. I almost look at these two environments and I can see them because two teams that I think are are confident within their own right will enjoy these atmospheres. So I do I, I do think I do think it, it it does obviously help the the home team because I think in those moments where you don't feel like you have maybe that extra gear or that extra thing like that, the, the crowd can literally lift you. Like it shakes in there. And, and because it's such a small building, it's, it's just that noise is even more magnified. So it certainly will play a role, but don't kid yourself that the jets aren't enjoying some of the atmosphere in in, in, in Vegas and vice versa. Some of the golden Knights are enjoying that atmosphere in Winnipeg because both are just incredible atmospheres. And, you know, and, and you can almost hear it from, you can almost hear the party outside from inside. Like mm-hmm. the building shake. Like I remember players talking about, like even when even during the COVID playoffs, when when fans weren't allowed in, in you know in, in the arena for playoffs, um, they could hear the fans outside. So wow. to, so there's a lot of players certainly who have an experience, and there's a handful of them for sure. Um, they're very much looking forward, and, and to those who have experienced the whiteout, I mean, they you know they they've been waiting for this since the last one. So uh, certainly a special time and uh, a special crowd and will definitely have an impact, I believe in, in game three and four for sure. And and maybe what's your prediction in the series? Like, do you think the jets will win this series? I, in my prediction. So I guess if it's a yes or no answer, I no, I don't think they win the, the series. Okay. I, I do have them going to game seven. I, I think it's going to be a tightly contested game. Um, I just don't see them winning in, Five. Like I don't see the Vegas winning in five. The Jets push the push the envelope there. I think, um, but then it's going to be tough to beat Winnipeg in Game Six. So my logic is Game Seven, home ice advantage, winner takes all. Um, I know Jets fans might not want to hear that, but I think that's a, su- a successful season for the Jets. I mean, it's not ideal, but 
if you can push the first team in the West seven games, you know, heck, if you can get past them, uh, definitely a, you know, a solid mark. But um, I just, I read all these, I read all these, uh, I've read a lot, a lot about the series from different people. And I just, I don't know, you know, I obviously buy into the tightly contested affair. I just don't, I just, when you look at it, I just, the, the Vegas Golden Knights have more experience. And I think that's going to be the difference here. It's going to be able to, it's going to be that ability to ride the highs and lows of, of a series. Um, the Jets have proven to not do that so well. Sometimes they almost get too high when they're high and certainly too low when, when things aren't going well. So um, just given the experience that Vegas has, I know there's not a ton of guys left of, from that 2018 run, but they do have a lot of guys that have played a lot of playoff games, a lot of veterans, um, particularly on the blue line that have played and won Stanley Cups with other teams. So uh, to me, I think that would be the edge in an otherwise pretty tight, tight series. Well, I'm hoping they maybe replicate uh, 2018 against Nashville and, and they go uh, and win on the road in the game seven. But you mentioned that it would be a successful year if the Jets even made it to a game seven against Vegas or even won uh, uh, the, the, the series. But there's a lot of rumors around this team going forward with basically a, a lot of their key players, Shifley, Dubois, Hellebuck, Wheeler, Nina Ryder. There's, I think there's a couple more too that are essentially UFAs at the end of the year in, in the case of Dubois. How different do you think this Jets team will look going into next season? Vastly different. I, 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 oh yeah. Like, I mean, if you were to ask me to, to guess, I think, I think Pierre-Luc Dubois, Mark Shifley and, and Connor Hellebuck, at least two of them have new homes next year. Wow. Um, just because unless these guys are willing to sign long-term, uh, long-term deals and you look at, you know, what, Connor Hellebuck might fetch. I mean, you have Elliot Friedman writing, you know, he talks to a lot of GMs around the league writing about how Connor Hellebuck's going to be the highest paid goalie, you know, in his next contract. Well, are the Jets even in a position to pay Connor Hellebuck 10 plus million dollars for seven or eight years? Like they've never done that in the past. I I mean, a lot of people say you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, he's going to, like, you know, Connor Hellebuck is, is definitely has some good years in him. Does he have eight good years in him at 10 million, you know, per season? Mm-hmm. And, and then you got to determine what the Jets have, you know, Mark Shifley, like Mark Shifley wants, is going to be demanding a raise. I mean, he's going to want upwards of nine, $10 million uh, for his next deal. And Pierre-Luc Dubois, I mean, with all the talk about, about Montreal and, and, you know, him wanting to play elsewhere. I mean, that's, that feels very real. And, and so uh, I think it's, I, it, there's a reason why this playoffs for the Winnipeg Jets is kind of being dubbed the last dance, because, you know, even when you talk to players who aren't those guys, uh, they're aware of the contracts. They're aware of the situation. They're aware that the NHL is a business um, and that you got to make the right decision for yourself. And um, it just looks like just, it looks like when you, when you couple that with the fact that the three players I talked about, obviously Dubois hasn't been here nearly as long as the other two play, in Hellbuck and, and Mark Scheifele and Blake Wheeler for that matter. I mean, he's got another year on his deal, but he, you know, there's, good reason to believe he won't be back next season. They tried to trade him over last off season. Like, are they going to try to do that again? Is he going to want to return all these different things? So um, that's why I, I think it's, I think a lot of those players are building their, their, their legacy in Winnipeg. Um, not entirely, but in some cases, you know, a big part of is, is going to be determined in this playoffs is how they're going to be remembered in Winnipeg. And I think that's a big advantage to Winnipeg because you, you know, those players want to be, well remembered here they want to be well liked in this city and a, and a, and a long playoffs uh long playoff run a successful playoff run will go a long way to 
to solidifying that legacy if and when you make some tough decisions this offseason that sees a couple go, you know, leave through the door, potentially all of them. Uh, I guess to follow up on that, my question would be is uh, Kevin Shovel Dayoff, a lot of people wanted him to blow up the team last summer and he didn't after a disappointing year. And they kind of, I don't even know if they retooled, they just ran it back. Is it, do you think that they'll go in the, rebuilding phase in terms of just selling off for assets or do you think it'll be more of let's get play like nhl players and still be a maybe not a playoff team but a competitive team in in the in winnipeg i think ideally for the jets organization they would want a the closest thing to a rebuild i mean i think even it, so if you were to trade some of those players i think they would want you know, again, in an ideal situation, is this likely? Probably not. It can be very difficult to get somebody of similar caliber of of a, of a Connor Hellebuck, for instance. I mean, if you get rid of your, if you if you trade Connor Hellebuck, you know, over the over the summer, you better get a good goalie back. I mean, I, I don't think you can do a lot of you know retooling um, uh, if you don't have a good goalie. Like if you you know if you want to you know if you want to if you want to rebuild. Um, you're going to get picks, right? So I think I think ideally the Jets would want to be competitive for years to come. If you look at Kevin Sheveldayoff's contract, and I don't know if I said rebuild at the start, I'm confusing myself now, but yeah. what I meant by that was Ooh. I think they, they want to get closest to not rebuilding. Okay. They want to have a couple more years. So I think I said rebuild, so I'll take that back. I didn't mean rebuild. I meant they want to be continuing to build their team to be a competitive unit. If you look at if you look at Kevin Shovel, he's got like two or three more years left on his deal. I'm not 100% sure the Jets want to go through Kevin Shovel Day off with a rebuild. Like I don't understand why you would have somebody a GM here for 12 years, you know, say they get bounced in the first round of the playoffs this year to win three playoff series in 12 years and then be in charge of an entirely new rebuild. Like you'd kind of want to have your GM that you saw long term and that very well could be Kevin shovel day off. Right. Um, but just with being in a performance results-based business, um, unless the jets can do something fairly special, you know, I think Kevin shovel off has to have a hot seat. Um, but I think if you're getting rid of those kind of caliber players, you might want to have, you might want to get players back in return players that can play now who can be leaders on your team. I just don't know many situations that, that have teams that they want to get rid of, equally good players right and, and in a lot of cases like you saw with the Patrick Liney and Pierre-Luc Dubois trade you needed kind of two disgruntled players to trade for each other now look at Pierre-Luc Dubois now I mean he kind of wants to leave now too so um, the reality is I think it's going to depend on it's going to be an incredibly interesting summer um, it's going to depend on what they can get for those players assuming that they want to trade those players because at this point in time there's nothing that you can really you know, point to and say that this is a definite path of, you know, of course here, because we've seen them run it back a bunch of times. Like it, yeah. it, it makes you feel like if they can get through one series here, like even if they get through one series and get bounced in whatever, four or five games in the second round, it just, you know, I get a lot of emails and I, I tend to, I don't know if concern is the right word for me, but to, tend to, to agree or think that it's a possibility that the management buys into the fact they have, you know, they want to go back again and try this, over and I just don't think that's going to be something that's going to that's going to breed success. I don't think they're going to have that opportunity. So um, if they do end up making trades and they can't get players, 
and but they can get picks. I think you'll have that answer that they're going to be, you know, the Jets have had a pretty decent scouting department. They've been able to find, you know, good pieces, particularly in the first round. So if they can collect more of those pieces, um, I think it'll be inevitable um, to have a have a rebuild. Some might argue a retool because you're, you're going to have players like Nick Lyles, you're going to have Josh Morris, you're going to have Kyle Connor, you're going to have talented players. Whether that's enough to compete for a playoff spot and do well in the playoffs, um, I'm not sure, but that will determine probably whether it's a retool or a rebuild. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I, it sounds as though it's probably pretty hard to do a retool, but um, they'll do their best to do it, even though it might be the best course of action to just strip it to the bone if, if they think they they uh, can't get anything back like a Pierre-Luc Dubois trade for for Line. Uh, I guess before before I let you go, I want to ask, do you have a Stanley Cup pick? Who is it? Um, and please don't be the Leafs. Uh, yeah, so I got two teams out of – so I just think Boston's just been too good this year. Okay. Um, you know, they're just too deep. They have two great goaltenders. Uh, they certainly have a defensive group that's that's strong. Forwards are there. I mean, this is the year for them. It just feels like this is Boston's year to lose. Um, so I have them coming out of the East and out of the West. I have the Dallas Stars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I just think if they can get past Mini in the first round and not aren't too beat up, I think they can take Colorado. I, I think Colorado's a beatable team this year. Losing Gabriel Landeskog for the playoffs was a big blow to them. Um, that would have been a massive injection of, of energy. I mean, they've had players out now for a little bit. Um, you know, Kale McCarr has been out of the lineup for a while. I mean, I'm sure he'll be back eventually, but um I just, I just, for some reason, feel that Dallas is built to be that team. They got, I think Ottinger's figured it out net. Um, certainly, you know, he's going to be a factor in this playoffs. And I just like the style of play in which they, they bring, you know, they, they can score, but they're very tight defensively. And it's those, it's those tight defensive teams and hard checking teams that, that are, that almost have opportunistic scoring um, that tend to, that, that tend to prevail. So I just have this weird feeling about Dallas Stars and uh, and certainly, um, you know, probably like a lot of people feel like the Boston Bruins are going to come out of the East and then I have Boston probably winning in six okay. or seven. Okay. Yeah, I was going to just ask you, who 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 did you have winning that that series? Uh, lastly, the floor is yours. What are you working on going forward? Any pieces, anything you want to plug for the listeners um, from you at, from the Winnipeg Free Press? You know, it's like with uh, with Jets right now, like this is the fun part of the season. It's all hands on deck for Jets playoffs. Mike, uh, my colleague, Mike McIntyre is there for game one and two. I'll be supporting him um, through that. Uh, certainly will be at the games, game three and four. And then, you know, if they make it to game five, I'll be there. And um, and then we'll and free press will have that covered. But it's I say it's a fun time because it's like 22 days from Bombers training camps. And so it's like I'm looking forward to the Jets run here. But I'm, I'm uh, you know, as long as that may be. Um, but I'm certainly looking forward to Bombers. So a lot, a lot of the same. Just, you know, we're going to have full coverage of this Jets run here. It's going to be an exciting. Hopefully it's an exciting run. Hopefully they can push Vegas, maybe even get over the top and and get into a second round because I know how exciting the city's going to be for as long as they're in the playoffs. So the longer, the better for sure. No, for sure. I'm, I'm hoping the same thing as a big jets fan. I I hope they go. I, I feel optimistic in this series. I don't think I like them if they were to win this series very much. Um, I'm thankful they're not playing uh Connor McDavid. I was pretty t- petrified for a yeah. couple of days that they'd play them. So I'm, I'm going to definitely check out your work at the free press and, uh, Really excited to to see what happens for you and uh, the rest of the year. And then obviously with the Brahmers. And uh, thanks so much for, for coming on, Jeff. Alex, thanks a lot for having me on, man. This was a blast.